Welcome back to the Alaska Music Podcast. One of my favorite things in the entire world is actually one of my jobs, and that's recording the Anchorage Symphony Orchestra. I record all of the rehearsals and all of the performances. And now that live streaming is involved, it's a whole lot more pressure, but a whole lot more fun. And for the past year and a half, I've had the honor of working with the insightful and incredibly musical Elizabeth Schulz, musical director for the Anchorage Symphony. I've recorded a few hours of interviews with her, but I want to play you a foreshortened introduction so I can share with you Dvorak's New World Symphony from the latest performance from the Anchorage Symphony Orchestra. Here's the Elizabeth Schulz interview. A few changes have happened in your position with the uh, Anchorage Symphony since last year. Can you tell us yes, where I you know. are now? When I last spoke with you, there was uh, the beginning of a search for the next music director, and I was brought on board to be the artistic advisor for the orchestra last season while they proceeded to search for their next leader and they sort of stopped that process early and said I think we've 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 identified someone we would like to continue with and that was me so I'm the new music director and I'm thrilled oh, <laughs> I was shocked I have to say I was shocked I had made a very very hard decision that I, I really wanted to do my work as artistic advisor and I wasn't putting myself out as a candidate because I didn't think I could do both. Um, sometimes when you're a candidate, you, have to, you, you operate on a different level. Um, you're trying to sell yourself to, to the organization and yet I was hired to make certain decisions um, that, might, uh, that, that might have to be made and maybe hard decisions but decisions as a music director I was being asked to make. And um, I didn't, I, I honestly didn't see myself being able to do both, be a candidate and have to make some difficult decisions if necessary. If there were people in audition mm -hmm. as, a, as a director, mm -hmm. what would they do? Would they come up for like a show? Would they One or two shows or a... a week of residency and, and they would be a, it would be an intense week uh, they would be being judged every single beat that they gave by the orchestra and uh, every move, but then a number of meetings with board members, community members, uh, other interested parties that would have been invited to meet with the candidate um, to see the suitability, how they fit into the community, right. their vision of the orchestra, all of those things. and. Um, that's that is extremely time-consuming, and it is also a different kind of. You are you are putting yourself out at your absolute best, and honestly, as artistic director, they saw me warts and all because I had to, I had to make certain decisions. I was involved in auditions. I was involved in things that. Um, you know, could possibly cause hard feelings or not or, or whatever. And so I just felt I've got to do one thing or the other. So what are the things that are hard decisions for? Well, especially, well, especially in auditions, who gets in, who doesn't. Um, seating, where people sit. Uh, uh, I, I chose the music. Uh, I make the decisions about the repertoire um, and assignments within the repertoire. Sometimes, you know, who's going to play this or that. Um, uh, also in rehearsal, uh, having to address issues. 
when people are playing out of tune, you've got to be able to say that. When you're a candidate, you tend not to say those things. <laughs> I'm just being honest yeah, about no, it. I, I, I just could, like you tend to put the rosiest view of everything. I could, and, I could see how it would it would prevent a little forward motion in the right. And also, you know, the board uh, were they called on me to um, report uh, every month. Um, my my observations, how things are moving along, and all of those things, and and just um, and also to work very closely with staff, keeping in mind budgets, keeping in mind time limitations, space limitations, all of those things right. that really do take your time up as a music director. Right. And before last season, which was which was all on stage, if I'm right, not mistaken, before the season, you had stepped in as an interim director remotely for yes. much of the remote recording that was that mostly to help program some of the online um programs the the chamber music the solos that people were playing just to sort of curate those programs but then also to plan for the next season right so back to where we are right now what was the main piece that was being worked on in rehearsal last night the Dvorak, the right. new world symphony right. yes yeah we spent a lot of time on that. Um, I'm kind of obsessed with that piece. I, I didn't used to be, but then more and more it has grown on me, and I realize uh, as, a, as a young musician, Vorjak was sort of looked down upon because he was so accessible. He was so tonal, of course. He was so easily whistleable, <laughs> and he was old-fashioned. You know, he had his heart on his sleeve, and he was sort of the easy man's Brahms or something. I mean, that, that, that way that they spoke of him was, was mm -hmm. so patronizing, frankly. Um, he was a genius in his own right, but uh, as I get more and more into understanding him as an artist, uh, the more I respect him and the more I realize that the New World Symphony was one of the major gifts, not only to the world, but to the United States, America, uh, in terms of saying, here, um, this is what I see when I'm in your country, this is what I hear, and I'm going to use what I hear from people that have been presented to me as representative, African-American singers singing spirituals, Native Americans dancing and singing in ritualistic situations, probably more commercially through, you know, the Buffalo Bill situation in New York, but also when he went into Iowa and stayed for a summer or two. I think it was at least one summer in Spillville, Iowa, a little farm town, but in the midst of communities of Native Americans who, were, who had, not everyone had been shoved into reservations and um, there was still uh, the possibility of, of encountering more genuine um, artistic and ritualistic uh, events um, as you went west in the late 19th century. And he did, and he heard, and he was inspired. He was also inspired by things that we look down on now, like um, uh, the legend of Hiawatha. Uh, was that Longfellow's poem? Um, is it Longfellow or... Samuel Taylor Coleridge, someone, I think it was Longfellow who wrote the, the story of Hiawatha and by the Lake Gichigumi and the, you know, right. all of these, yeah. these made up words that have nothing to do with reality in terms of, of real Native American, right. uh, you know, uh, tribal leaders and, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but it 
it created a fantasy world for Europe and and for Mr. Vorjak, and then he went and came to the United States and actually saw the real thing and heard the real thing and went, oh, okay, well, this is America. Hey, everyone, you have your you have your music right here. That's what you should use. Now he got so much pushback um, from all of those young white men who had gone over to Europe to get their musical training who wanted to sound like Brahms and Vorschach himself and didn't understand why they should look to the music of, of backyards and down south as their key. But he did, and he, he created this amazing symphony that fuses the European tradition and his own genius, his own ability to create big vistas of sound and and really paint a picture for the ear um, or mind's eye I guess but using materials of American music here in this in this country and I just think I hear it more and more and it was argued you know no it really is a Czech symphony he's using bohemian music it just it sounds bohemian it's it's just purely European and it's and it's kind of schlock that's what when I was young that's you know it was a big old war horse and we're all tired of it well as I get older and into the 20th 21st century I hear it very differently um, and and I suppose some people might think of it as you know musical appropriation and all of that as we move into new <laughs> new rules. But I don't see it that way. I think he was trying to set a template and a challenge for the future. And what is so beautiful is that he was answered not by the traditional voices in conservatories and people who had studied in Europe in the 19th and early 20th centuries. But there were people that listened, someone like Florence Price, others, um, who took his challenge and brought that music which was directly related to them, their ancestors who had been enslaved or um, folk that had uh, that are descended from uh, I'm thinking of James Lee III, who is African-American and Native American, and he brings both those um, musics into his work today. And often, and he even wrote a piece in, in conversation with the New World Symphony. So people listened, and it might have been 100 years later that they're really, that we're starting to use that as conversation, but he did open the conversation. I think it's fascinating that that piece can live in the 21st century and be something different now than it was in the 20th century as an old war horse, and I've heard it too many times. Now it is the moment in which we can have um, a new music emerge that takes that into account. About when was it first performed? Uh, well, it was written in 1892. Um, so about 1892-93, it was, it was premiered by the New York Philharmonic with him conducting. In Europe, it seems like there's a much smaller indigenous population, which in turn would have a much smaller influence on uh, European composers, whereas in the U.S., obviously, it's opposite. We have the Sami people, and you have some people in the very northern part of uh, Sweden and Finland and, and others who are mm -hmm. indigenous there and are sometimes overlooked. Yeah. But you're right. In my producing Native American Absolutely. music, yeah. it's a, a more of a fascination to people in Europe that yes. there's this incredible music. 
Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that had something to do with his fascination coming over here was this entirely different uh, source. I think it must have been astounding to him. New York City must have been incredible. I mean, it still is incredible. It's big, it's bustling, all of those things. But at the turn of the century, I mean, it was state of the art because it was newer than almost any capital in Europe, which was ingrained. So all the buildings were old. In New York, a lot of those buildings that now look old to us 100 years later were brand new. Um, motor, ve- you know, motorized vehicles, steam engines. He used to go down to the train station ev- almost every day to watch the engines come in because he was absolutely obsessed with newfangled um, technology. If he lived today, he would have either iPhone 14 or the latest mm-hmm. Gal- Galaxy Flip. He'd uh, he'd be surrounded by electronics, and who knows? He maybe he might not even have been a musician. He might have been a tech technician or a scientist or, or anything, a, a astronaut, who knows what he right. might have been. But um, a different yeah, he was absolutely genius. obsessed. And he was probably encountering African-American uh, people, people, a diverse, he was probably m- meeting people that he could never have imagined meeting in Europe. And they were all invited into the conservatory. The woman who had founded this uh, American conservatory paid a lot of money to, I mean, the equivalent of, I don't know, nearly a million dollars or half a million dollars to have him come um, to the United States to teach. And she opened up the conservatory, which was many conservatories were, um, did not allow uh, a diversity at all. It was, and it was only men. And she allowed women, uh, other races, I, I, just everyone could come in. And it, uh, I think it opened his eyes. So it must have been incredible for him to have this experience, to have Harry T. Burley, one of the most beautiful voices that we've ever produced. And also he is very well known for creating, um, establishing the spiritual uh, in arrangements, he published he published them for the first time. It's very interesting uh, in my in my study of this that it was not common for African Americans after slavery to sing the spirituals. They were they they reminded everyone of sad times, and so they were not considered um, they were not lifted up. But uh, Harry T. Burley remembered his mother or someone sang them to him, his grandmother, um, from from the plantation, they remembered it, and he sang them for Vorjok. So Vorjok said, well, you must make arrangements, Harry. These are fantastic. Make them into songs. People need to sing these. I mean, how incredible. It took someone from Europe to come over and, and value what was here in America, um, waiting to be used as the roots of our of our music. By the way, you're doing an excellent job learning the names of everybody on that stage. Tr- <laughs> <laughs> it's important I've to be colleagues. I've known some of them for 30 years, and I still struggle. Well, I'm not saying I'm perfect. Uh, I think I called someone by A instead of A, or vice versa, that kind of pronunciation. So We're I'm all still wearing learning. masks. How can, how can you tell who people exactly. are, really? The twinkle in their eye, I recognize them. Well, thank you very much for coming in and talking it's to me. It's been my pleasure. Elizabeth Schulz, new permanent artistic director and conductor of the Anchorage Symphony Orchestra. So as promised, here's the complete Dvorak New World Symphony, performed by the Anchorage Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Elizabeth Schulz. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Elizabeth Schultz conducting the Anchorage Symphony Orchestra, Dvorak's New World Symphony. That's the show. Thanks for stopping by. The Alaska Music Show and Podcast is produced by me, Kurt Riemann, in beautiful, surreal studios in beautiful downtown Anchorage, close to the beautiful Alaska Center for the Performing Arts, where beautiful music is willed into existence by incredible musicians. You can find our playlists and more information at nightworksmedia.com. That's nightworksmedia.com. Drop us a line. Tell us what you think. Until next time, be kind to your neighbors and be kind to trumpet players. They may be noisy, but we need them. Stay safe and stay warm with an Alaskan song in your heart.